be able to hear my conversation with our fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about the recent Fed decision and all of the market movement coming after that Fed decision. We also address the recent Canadian inflation numbers and get his view on the rest of the world. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with our chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. Dustin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me back on. We, uh, we've been tending to time these post-Fed to get your reaction to the latest Fed decision. Uh, this podcast is no different. Uh, the Fed, as widely expected, uh, paused their, uh, their rate hiking yesterday. Uh, I'm curious uh, what your take on the overall decision was. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of, a lot of interesting things falling out of the Fed meeting yesterday, tried and uh, touch on most of them. I think so. Yeah, Fed on hold, as as generally expected, the market actually went in with basically nothing priced, maybe even one right. basis point, if that. So it was not not a surprise. But we went in uh, with a, a quite a hawkish bias in terms of uh, how the Fed might message, both from uh, September meeting is traditionally a forecast round meeting. So we got the, the dots, so to speak, mm-hmm. and then the new the new forecasts. Uh, and then we thought that the language would also be uh, quite hawkish. And we got we got all of that. Uh, some of the big takeaways from yesterday was, I mean, first of all, the formal statement, which shouldn't be ignored. The Fed in the first paragraph, which is traditionally in the formal statement uh, geared towards uh, the economic outlook, was, I would say, upgraded a little bit, expecting a solid, uh, use the term solid, economic growth from, uh, from, I believe the term before was moderate in the, in the late July meeting. So that was definitely an upgrade. But the dots were definitely the star of the show. And yeah. uh, we had expected that the Fed would keep uh, one more 25 basis point hike for 2023 in its forecast. So just to rewind uh, very quickly, the last forecast round was June. And in June, the Fed might recall added 50 basis points worth of hiking for 2023. That was right. after March when people expected a lot to be done. And then the banking crisis happened, SVB happened, and then nothing got added. So they basically added those hikes that were supposed to come in March in June. And so, since June, we obviously had one hike, which was in July. And so they kept that second 25 basis point hike, so to speak, for uh, for the rest of the year when they released the um, their latest statement of economic projections, the SEP, this week in, uh, in, in September. So that's there. And that was a 12 to 7 margin. So 12 people expect still one more hike this year of the 19 participants, not all voters, but participants. And then seven are not expecting another hike. So it's not... It's not uh, unbelievably one-sided, but it's also not close to 50-50 either. So I think that's interesting. Another takeaway was next year. So in June, the previous statement uh, statement of economic projections, the forecasts, the dots, so to speak, uh, the Fed had priced or the Fed at least had marked down 100 basis points worth of easing in 2024 back at the June meeting. We thought they would cut that, cut the cuts basically. Uh, so down to 75. And we were saying internally here on the team, 
I thought maybe 15 or 20% probability that they could actually cut 50 basis points of the 100. So actually go down and only expect 50 basis points of easing for 2024. And that's actually what we got. The Fed actually cut the, the, the amount of easing for next year from 100 basis points to 50. So that's quite a hawkish move. Now, that was a little bit more 50-50. I think it was basically 10-9 uh, in the round when you kind of sum some of the parts, so to speak. So it was a very close decision. So that idea of kind of leaning that way and maybe that that would just get over the line was actually not not a bad lean. But that, but those that kind of takeaway was very much a uh, – uh, those things were generally – uh, having a pretty pretty hawkish impact and uh, and take away from the uh, from a market uh, from a market perspective. A couple other little things, maybe a little bit more academic, but I think are interesting. Um, September, the September forecast round, which obviously we've just had, is traditionally the the month where they add the uh, the next out year of the forecast period. So right. this, like just now, we got the first look at their expectations. It sounds like a long way, and it is a long way for 2026. So they added the 2026 year, and I'm only getting into it because the Fed's long run estimate of where uh, rates should be, Fed funds target should be is still even over the uh, estimate of the whole forecast period below where they expect Fed funds to be through 2026. So said in a more efficient way, they expect to keep rates higher than the long run rate for the duration of the forecast period through 2026. And not only that, someone else was saying, I didn't actually uh, find this, figure it out myself, but the 2026 estimate, which will change many, many, many times, and we'll chat about that many, many times. Sure. But as it sits right now, the 2026 estimate is about 40 basis points over uh, where the long one rate is. And that's interesting because that's the biggest gap higher since at least 2015. And so that I think kind of just, again, that's a little bit more academic, but what does that tell you, right? That tells you, okay, the Fed is really thinking about higher for longer. I mean, right. really thinking about higher for longer. Take what I said about the 23 dot staying in, uh, taking away easing for 2024, and then where it sees the profile of easing for the next part of the cycle, not even getting to the long run rate. So that tells you that the Fed is clearly concerned about structural inflation, which has been a key theme for us, and we've talked about it a lot on these podcasts. Um for a long time. And the Fed is very much concerned about that. And when you look at the unemployment rate, although it's clearly higher off the back of a, a very low starting point, a very strong labor market, it's not moving significantly higher. So I think the Fed is very concerned around uh, an economy that's that's operating at a very, very high capacity, whether you look at it from a unemployment side, labor side, and inflation side, and the growth side, where the Fed was clearly offside back in March and June with its growth forecast for this year in particular, right. and has now come come to the table with really a, a proper a proper growth estimate. I mean, it's September, so it's a little bit late in the game, but um, yeah, we're clearly seeing that higher for longer narrative come through in the estimates. Whether you look at the formal statement, the dots, or kind of the inflation estimates, the growth estimates, or obviously the unemployment estimates. Just uh, you've prompted two questions for me. One sort of the shorter term in nature, one a little longer term in nature. Let's start with the shorter term. Sure. Uh, it sounds like everything the Fed is laying out uh, leads them to believe very robust growth 
probably avoiding a recession if you if you take in the the higher for longer narrative and, and revised economic outlook. Is that your take on it? Or? Yeah, yes and no. Yeah, I, I agree. Yes, first of all, I, I that that's what the numbers would suggest for sure. The only reason I hesitate on that is because during the press conference yesterday, Chairman Powell, someone asked a, a good question, and uh, I'll, I'll get it slightly I'll get it slightly wrong, but the crux of it was. Do you still believe that the soft landing is going is, is your base case scenario? And he essentially said, I wouldn't necessarily say that soft landing is our base case. Hmm. So I don't not to not to confuse it a bit more, not, not to say that that not to say that they're not looking for a base case or he sorry, that they're not looking for uh, a soft landing as a base case anymore. I just I'm not sure that he wants to define it uh, as as such in the press conference. So I don't necessarily think that they've moved off it, but at the same time, that caught, I think, a lot of people by surprise because he clearly had been a little bit more, uh, a little bit more boisterous around, around the soft landing scenario. But I think the numbers would suggest, when you look at the unemployment number uh, expectations and you look at where they think uh, Fed funds needs to go over the next couple of years, it would it would clearly to take kind of the to say it the other way just from a language perspective, it would not suggest that they are expecting a hard landing. Let's put it that way. Right. In in this scenario, like is there is there a scenario where we get into maybe a technical recession or not a deep recession and they keep rates at elevated levels without without cuts? It's always possible. Um, we'll we'll have to see how we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, clearly. Where they are around inflation is going to sorry how the inflation numbers come in are going to be the the determinant of that right, right? and we're seeing it a little bit in Europe with kind of the stagflationary story uh, right. becoming more and more of a not only a thematic but but a realization and this goes back to my you know there are there are probably three camps inside every central bank there will be the hawks that'll say lower inflation at any cost you know, probably lower growth as a result. There'll be the doves that'll say we're okay, leaving it, leaving inflation a little bit higher uh, because we don't want to necessarily cause that economic malaise. And there'll be obviously a group, a group somewhat, somewhat in the middle. So I think it remains remains to be seen. I mean, my view is that I think we're past the peak in inflation, and the oil story is you know is significant here if you want to talk right. about that. But um, I think we're past the peak in inflation. But this idea that we had. You know, May May 21 was this nar- narrative around leveling up in terms of inflation, and then late 21, early 22, moving to a from level up to sticky, and then late 22 from sticky to structural. And I think we're in that now. It's very tough for me to see inflation come back down to two percent. That said, I don't think it's going to be ripping at four or five. I think that right. I think a three handle, whether it's low threes or high threes, is there. And there, and I think it. I, I go through all that because I think. With a, a th- you know three and a half level on inflation, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do a lot more to cause to cause significant economic malaise. So we'll have to see how the consumer holds up and just kind of where we are within the threes, if it's a high threes or a low threes, because I think that makes a difference. That's a perfect summary. Turning to the sort of longer term question that I had, you, you yep. referenced the 2026 uh, dots being 40 basis points higher than the long term. Yeah, um, I guess they can get to the long term rate one of two ways. They can they can continue to have uh, interest rates cuts uh, to get them to their current long term, or of course they can change their long term projection, uh, the so called R star. Right? Is that on the on the table? Like, do you think that there's a bias here that we could see the long term projections uh, ratchet up over the coming year? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. The answer is definitely yes. If it comes higher, it's it's probably going to be uh, a slow move higher. It's probably not going to gap higher. And mm-hmm. kind of going into Jackson Hole, there was a week or 10 days where that was definitely the market buzz given the topic of Jackson Hole. Okay, wow, Powell's going to drop <laughs> drop some some uh, some decision that seems to suggest that they're going to be raising the long-term rate. That didn't happen. But what we did see for at least the second consecutive uh, meeting here, um, at least forecast meeting, we saw it in June, we saw it uh, this week for the for the September forecast round, is that what's called the the central tendency for the long-term rate continues to edge higher. So that basically means that you're seeing people, a few people move their long-term estimate higher on the margin, but when you take it as an average of 19, it's not enough to move the average from a, a step function perspective. So we're seeing the lean to your question. I think it's a great question. We're definitely seeing the lean, but it's not there. I think after one or two more central tendency moves higher, so to speak, we will see the long-term rate move a bit higher. And then maybe kind of what I said around the gap, I mean, obviously around the gap, um, it, it probably wouldn't be as, it wouldn't be as significant. That said, if the long-term rate moves higher then maybe people's estimates for where the, the Fed funds target range needs to be in 2026 also concurrently moves oh, higher. And sure. so maybe that gap actually does, does stick around. But yeah, it's an interesting discussion and it all kind of feeds back, obviously, you know, what does it mean for markets? How do you make how do you make money off it? And you know the general you know the one two um, you know sentence synopsis is it probably means that uh, long end long end yields need to be a little bit higher. And then you know from a risk perspective, from a valuation perspective, obviously you know when you're looking at when you're looking at that that uh, you know that that risk free rate is higher when you're doing equity valuations, etc. Well, let's let's uh, segue to that and, and talk about the immediate market reaction to uh, events of the Fed yesterday. What, what's happened and, and what are you expecting over the call it short to medium term? So we've seen we've seen yields higher, uh, you know, primarily in my markets, right? So uh, treasury yields are higher and they've been they've been moving higher anyway. So it added to the narrative, which is interesting, right? Because you kind of you would expect uh, there's a decent probability of fading the recent move higher in yields for anything. But the Fed was so was perceived to be so hawkish that you continue to see a move higher in yields, even given the recent momentum. I think that I think that says something. So we've seen cyclical highs here in ten-year bonds, ten-year treasuries, uh, and and the same for for thirty-year treasuries, and frankly, the same pretty much all all across the curve. And not only are we seeing it in the nominal curve, we're also seeing it in the real curve, i.e., the the tips curve, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities curve. Yields continue to move either close to or at cyclical highs for uh, for real rates. So that tells you uh, that the market is clearly very uh, concerned around a number of things, higher for longer, for sure. There's also this fiscal issue and supply theme that we've been very, very focused on on the team for the last four or five plus weeks uh, that I think maybe isn't as big a driver now, but has clearly been driving and was was much more of a driver, I would say, I would say a month ago, and we're seeing obviously risk, at least as we record the podcast here today, um, we're seeing risk offered across the board, right? So equities are are a bit lower as you would expect, and credits under a little bit of uh, constraint, and the dollar, the U.S. dollar, is 
is quite a bit bid. And I think uh, making, again, uh, fresh cyclical highs when you look at when you look at the dollar index, DXY, um, which to be fair is very, very heavily weighted towards a, a euro basket or in the, right. around 55%. But I think whether you look at it from a trade-weighted basis or from a DXY perspective, or even kind of the Bloomberg um, the, the Bloomberg Custom Index, uh, which is a little broader than than the DXY, it uh, it continues to move higher. So I think kind of ri- people uh, concerned about risk higher for longer. Is that going to make the a risk of a recession uh, more prominent and sooner? I think that is um, you know I think that's weighing on people's minds and uh, our discussions within the team here is is exactly around that. Does does this mean that the uh, the pathway to a hard landing is now wider uh, or more likely? And does this mean that the pathway to a soft landing is becoming more more challenging? Given where, I mean, who knows where things go? These are these are estimates. This is not this is not a a blueprint and set in stone. But given what the Fed is thinking around higher for longer and the messaging that it's doing, does it put does it put the the U.S. North American global economy at at further risk, and there's a lot. There's a lot of interesting, I think, questions uh, around that. Let's uh, leave the U.S. for now and turn to, to Canada. We uh, recently had a CPI print came in a little hotter than was anticipated. Uh, what did you make of that CPI print, and what do you think the ramifications are? So the Canadian CPI print was definitely a surprise. The headline for sure, and I wasn't surprised to see it higher than expected. The Canadian number, and we've talked about this a few times, and not to sound academic, but the, the way the Canadian number gets reported just across the wire is a non-seasonally adjusted number, while the U.S. one, when it just comes across the wire, is a seasonally adjusted one. There, there are both versions for both countries. But the non-seasonally adjusted consensus for the monthly number for Canada was only 0.2, and that did not look right to me because... And I used to do this stuff in a in a former life uh, when I was working as an economist, but it didn't look right to me because oil prices move so much and gasoline right. prices move so much, and because it's a non seasonally adjusted number, I just thought that it was going to have a pretty outsized impact. Anyway, so the the headline number did come in a bit a bit hotter than that. But what I really think moved the market was that the core prints, both trim and um, and the median. Um, core prints on the annual basis were quite a bit higher than expected. And one of those two, I'm actually forgetting which one, uh, got revised higher uh, from the previous month. But the core numbers, going back to our usual, um, you know, this is this is a structural, this is a structural issue in the economy. Inflation is becoming very structural. Those core numbers uh, were up quite a bit. And you saw uh, you saw a big reaction in in the futures for for the Canadian for the market pricing the Canadian dollar or sorry the well the Canadian dollar for sure but uh, the Bank of Canada outlook so the market right. is now pricing another 32 basis points worth of hikes by the Bank of Canada through the end of Q1 next year so five five thirty two core the the Bank of Canada rates you know five percent of course the uh, Current Fed funds target range is five and a quarter to five and a half. Fed the Fed targets a range, and, and Canada broadly uh, targets a, more of a point estimate. So the market's pricing about five uh, five thirty five thirty two at least last time I looked through the end of March of uh, of twenty four, and that was the big. And we also saw a big move in Canadian dollar stronger appreciation, so dollar right. Canada lower. Uh, through 134, and obviously the front end of the well, the whole curve really of the, the Canadian curve moved higher. The front end obviously worked to uh, to price that 
uh, as well. So that was pretty big. That was pretty significant. Uh, pretty significant move, I think, on the on the Canada side. We're having a lot of discussions, I think, internally around uh, whether you know, whether Canada can go one more or not. The market continues to. It's a little different now. Um, I didn't really get into a lot of pricing from the last question, but on the Canada side, the market is really not pricing a lot of easing for 2024, which, you know, given what everybody knows, uh, the housing market here, uh, variable rate mortgages, the reset risk, uh, you know, sure. all, all, you know all, all that risk. Obviously, it's higher beta economy with respect to housing uh, compared to the U.S. The, you know, the average household debt level is still quite a bit higher than the U.S., U.S. household generally delevered after 07, 08, 09. We did not. Uh, in fact, we we increased. But that all said, the market is still pricing in, even with yesterday's Fed move, less easing by the Bank of Canada for 2024 than the Fed. And we find that, and a lot of people I speak to on the street, whether it's people in Canada or people that watch Canada internationally in, in New York or otherwise, find that a bit curious. Um, sure. So we're looking for opportunities to uh, take advantage of that and uh, potentially fade that. So, I mean, and the markets come in a fair bit here on, so when you look at kind of peak to end of 24 pricing for the Fed, and the market was at one point this month, I think on the first of the month, which I think was a Friday, the market was pricing 120 basis points worth of easing by the Fed. And then after yesterday, that actually halved down to about 60, 62 basis points. But the but the Bank of Canada equivalent is probably around 35 or 40 basis points worth of easing from the peak through the end of next year. So even though it's come in a lot, um, it's it's interesting that it hasn't necessarily gone it's gone a way that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have expected where the Fed pricing has come in as opposed to the Bank of Canada pricing getting, you know, pricing in more easing. At some point, I think that the Bank of Canada, the market will start pricing Bank of Canada more easing. And that's where I think the big takeaway is from the CPI data. And when you look at the data, a lot of it was energy. You had Deputy Governor Kozaki from the bank of a handful of hours later, four, five, six hours later, talk about the volatility in month-to-month rates, which seemed to suggest that the bank might look through the, uh, the relatively hot inflation print. Obviously, if it sticks around there for a while, it may not. Right. Um, but the initial, the initial kind of feedback or pushback from the bank, so to speak, was that Obviously, it's watching it, and if it remains elevated, it will need to do something. But my, my impression in the prepared remarks and, the, and her Q and A remarks were that the bank was not overly, overly fussed about it. But let's see how core inflation in Canada continues to continues to grind. But basically, at around four percent, and it's pretty it's pretty structural. And again, similar to the U.S., it's a higher for longer story here at a minimum. And I think that. Uh, you know, the bank's going to be holding rates for a while, but my concern is that once the bank starts to ease, it's not going to be tweaking by 25. It's going to be cutting by 50s or more because consumption is going to be uh, really gapping lower, probably because of household balance sheets and the state of the housing market. Wonderful context on Canada. Uh, something to pay attention to, and I suspect something that you'll come back to when we talk about how you're positioning portfolios. Uh, before we get there, though, let's uh, go outside of North America. Bank of England uh, had a meeting uh, this morning, and I'm just curious in general about your views on sort of rest of world and what the Fed action and what is happening in North America and how that impacts rest of the world. Sure. Yeah. There's there's so much to watch. There's so there's so many interesting going so many interesting things going on in the macro space. 
and we try and we obviously try and look, watch that and, and take advantage of that throughout a lot of our fixed income portfolios, whether it's the UK or Japan or continental Europe or emerging markets. Uh, and there's many, many things within emerging markets. So it's, it, there, there's lots, there's lots of interesting things. There's lots of interesting things to play for. We could, could talk for an hour just on, on that question alone, but kind of the, the, the shorter podcast answer, I guess, is, um, yes, Bank of England, which, um, we spent, we spent some time on and we have some positions on, but it's not a core core holding for us, okay. but, Banks somewhat surprised the market and and held rates uh, this morning. It was a close vote, five four, and and we know we know what the votes are, like the Fed, but unlike the Bank of Canada, uh, we know we know what the votes are. And it's interesting uh, the the inflation data, although still nominally notionally very very high in the UK, have come off a lot from uh, very very low double digits, just over ten percent to under seven percent, which is still again very very high, but sure. it's come off a lot on, on an annual basis. And at some point in August, the meeting today was actually. Uh, significantly priced for 50 basis points. And then uh, slowly over the past four, five, six weeks, that number came out and then it was more a 25 decision. And then just as we, uh, the day before the meeting, it basically got to 50-50 whether they were going to do 25 or, or anything at all. So they ended up doing ended up doing nothing. I don't think it's necessarily the end of the Bank of England cycle. And we've right. seen a lot of banks Globally, here, U.S., uh, ECB, you know, well, not not continental Europe per se, but a number of central banks kind of go to this every other uh, skip meeting. Uh, you know, New Zealand is essentially done, probably, although they may come back for a little bit more. Uh, Australia has been kind of in and out. Uh, Switzerland held today, which was kind of a surprise. So, uh, there, we're getting to this point. We're actually in. We're in it now. We're in this point where every central bank is. I don't want to say doing its own thing, but it's it's different. You can't look at everything and say, okay, rates are clearly going higher. It's only a question of delta, like how quickly are they going to go? Right. Now we're seeing this inflection point where some are still keeping one on the table or two, some are done, some are easing. And it's very much a, this is the market we were expecting earlier this year to emerge where you're going to see these opportunities, you know, around, around the globe. Uh, we have a, we have a Bank of Japan meeting tonight, so I won't spend a lot of time on, on it for this podcast because I don't want it to be, to be stale, but the bank is clearly moving towards a, uh, the Bank of Japan is clearly moving towards a period of, uh, not only I would say tweaking its yield curve control policy and letting it, and letting yields move higher, but also moving closer to uh, hiking rates and getting away from still what is still a negative deposit rate policy rate in uh, in Japan minus ten basis points, and that's that's moved up I think quite a bit um, uh, since our since even our last podcast with some of the governor's uh, discussion via domestic sources. Uh, that seem to suggest that even by January of next year, we'll see an increase in uh, in the Bank of Japan's policy rate. In Europe, continental Europe, the ECB uh, is probably at um, is probably at or very close to at the peak of its cycle. We had been expecting the bank to hold rates, but then come back in October. They surprised us and a, and a number of people in the market by actually hiking in this in September and then essentially saying that it's done. Although a number of hawks have come back out subsequently and keeping one more keeping one more in play, but the but the ECB has uh, has come back and uh, and so we've seen a lot of a lot of different a lot of different moves here and then kind of on the EM side, Brazil is very actively engaging in an easing cycle. It's right. been one of our favorite trades, not only for global and unconstrained, but for 
other other portfolios having a little bit of Brazil risk on receiving or buying uh, Brazil. We talked about it late in, uh, well, I guess probably early Q2, uh, April, April or May, when we started receiving or buying very high yielding nominal and real uh, local market debt in particularly Latin America, Brazil and Max. And that's a trade that we still like. And Brazil uh, cut cut uh, this week by 50, as expected. The second easing in its cycle, I expect it to cut at least twice more this year by 100 basis points in total. And the swaps market has pricing for um, for early next year as well. Um, with what's interesting now, I think with the Fed being quite quite a bit more hawkish, I think the the Mexico trade maybe gets a little bit more challenging because I don't think the similar to the Bank of Canada, I don't think Mexico, the Central Bank of Mexico, wants to be that far off right. uh, the Fed cycle. So maybe with this Fed move here or not, or, or or change in view. From a dots uh, perspective, which we've obviously already talked about, that uh, it pushes out the uh, the central bank of Mexico uh, rate easing cycle uh, a little bit, which which in theory could go uh, just from a, a textbook perspective, I guess, might go against us a little bit. Um, although I think the yield capture in Brazil, sorry, the yield capture in Mexico and the local markets and the M bono market is so is so captivating uh, that, 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 that the carry story there is still, it's an overwhelming driver in terms of being able to receive rates uh, at that level and being in, invested in a currency that I think is going to still broadly outperform uh, unless we have a massive risk off event. So uh, I mean, that's just a handful of kind of round the world things that uh, we're watching. We're watching other things too, obviously, but those are some of the more, some of the more interesting ones that, uh, that, that we're focusing on. Two quick questions, and then we'll get into what you're doing in the the portfolio. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the Brazilian exposure, what are you doing with currency? So we generally, not always, but we generally leave the local market uh, exposure open. We generally don't hedge it. Um, The MEX, we did hedge it a little bit, uh, but the Brazil trade, when we went in uh, in Q2 of this year, so you're, you're buying the local currency you're buying the local currency paper, so you're buying Brazilian sovereign debt in Brazilian rei. So you own you own the currency, the Brazilian rei, and we we generally don't hedge it. We did not in uh, in this case. Um, yeah, and that's generally how uh, the global team, Constantine in particular, since he's built up the global side, uh, has has generally traded it. We, if we, if we, it's not always the case, but if you generally like the sovereign paper. You generally like the currency uh, as well. And then one thing that kind of tangential to that, that I think is really important, we've mentioned it before, but I think it's important for, particularly for Canadian investors. We obviously sit here in Canada, right? And our base currency, our performance currency is is in Canadian dollars, right? And obviously the global benchmark for a lot of these things is, okay, what's happening with dollar Brazil, US dollar Brazil, US dollar max, right? US dollar anything. But we, we, and I need to catch myself on this too, having worked for a long time in the States, it's Canada, Brazil, right? It's Canada max. How are those crosses, those currency crosses going to perform? Because it's a bit of a different, it's a bit of a different ball of wax. And the Canadian dollar you know, as my, you know, my view on Canadian dollars, you know, whatever your view is on risk, that should be generally your view on the Canadian dollar, right? If you right. think that risk is going to sell off and you probably want to be short Canadian dollars, you think risk is going to generally do well, it's probably, you probably want to be long. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously, rate spreads and oil and whatever, but um, risk risk at the top of the, the dashboard, so to speak. And why I go through all that and why I think it's important is because 
if risk materially sells off, let's just say it does. I'm not saying it will, but let's just say it does. Risk materially sells off. I would expect the Canadian dollar to sell off. I would also expect Brazil to sell off against the U.S. dollar. Right. But I would expect Brazil to sell off more than I would the Canadian dollar. But what happens when you're sitting here in Canada using Canadian dollar as a home currency or as a kind of the, the reporting currency is that you kind of have a natural hedge uh, against against those EM currencies because it behaves in the same way. If you were sitting in the U.S. and you had a massive risk-off event and you owned, let's say, Brazilian local paper in, and you weren't hedged in Brazilian you know, Riai, you own the Riai, you'd be owning an asset that would be falling significantly and worth less right. when you tried to convert it back to US dollars. You're still going to be kind of on the wrong side of it, to be fair, but that that beta uh, is going to be less against Canadian right. dollars. It's going to move with you. So I think that's an interesting thing for Canadian investors to always keep in mind. And I, you know, having come back here a few years ago from living in the US, I find that a lot of Canadian investors uh, are under underweighted EM investments, and I think that that I mean you should t- you should obviously invest invest it based on kind of your cyclical dynamics and, and asset allocation beliefs and all those things you know as people do and we do, but it's important to keep in mind that I think there's a um, a good natural hedge when you when you do those things being a being domiciled in Canada, so I think that's an interesting way to kind of look at it. Anyway, it's a long answer to your kind of your yeah. head your your do do you it's hedge good. or do you don't? But that's one of the reasons why that's one of the reasons why we don't hedge as much, right? In the U.S., if you're a U.S. investor, you're probably more more likely to hedge because of those dynamics. But we kind of take a different view because we think there's a natural hedge kind of built in. Great, great context. Uh, my last very quick question: Is Japan the last place where you get negative yielding debt? <laughs> there might, you got me there. There might be some. Okay. There might be somewhere else. If it if it is, it's not. It's not a major major. Uh, it's not a major economy that sure. that you have a huge float in. Um, Japan is clearly the last of the big ones that uh, where where you can still yeah where you can still get that. Uh, but from a policy rate perspective, yeah, it is. I mean, even the Swiss. Have gone from negative seventy five to I think plus one seventy five now, right. uh, having having not hiked uh, this week as a surprise. But yeah, the, the Japan Japan in some ways is very much uh, an island uh, on its own, and pun pun obviously intended. Great. Well, let's get into what you're doing in the portfolio. What what uh, what action has this led to? It sounds like there's uh, tons going on, lots of uh, things moving different ways, which is a great time to make money. Um, curious how you're trying to take advantage of it. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, we've kind of touched on it, like sprinkled throughout the, the discussion. But uh, let me start with just saying one thing that um, I think is always interesting. Sometimes the the trade you don't do ends up being a really good trade, uh, and, and maybe even the best trade. And we had a lot of discussions in the early part of August around duration, particularly U.S. duration. And duration yields been moving, moving yields have been moving higher. And we, I think we talked about it on the last podcast around a number of events, particularly the fiscal story, this quarterly refunding announcement, and the debt story, the deficit story in the U.S. Would it be a driver? Would it be a driver for more than a day or two or three or a week? Like, would it actually? be a thing. And with the fiscal story comes, I think, issuance and supply. And not only, I guess, from the sovereign, but also like rolling into September, we were expecting to see significant corporate issuance once once we got past Labor Day. And, and we did. Um, and, you know, my view was that 
uh, I was very concerned that a, a number of things uh, around fiscal and the budget in the U.S. and the the Fitch uh, downgrade and Bank of Japan tweak at the end of July and the U.S. economic data more monetary and the output data being very very strong and and all those things and then the talk of Jackson Hole we talked we touched on it a minute ago the long term rate may be coming higher but like the rumor around that all those things is this the right time to buy long end duration do we want to buy long end bonds here or do we think that we're at the cusp of seeing a bit of a theme or a trading dynamic which may last who knows how long a few weeks hmm. months maybe even a quarter or two and you know, I think as a team, having that, a lot of very, very in-depth discussions uh, in early and into mid, uh, mid-August, we, as a team, I would say, decided that we were not comfortable buying long-end bonds yet, long-end duration, and that yields would continue to move higher. And I think that that decision is is a big deal because. Right. I think those that were buying uh, long-end duration at that point are clearly on the wrong side of that at this point now. And so not not having done that, so to speak, I think is I think I think it's great. I think it's great for our, our investors um, that we haven't we haven't done that and that we didn't do that. And we're still having that discussion. You know, we, I could just before before this podcast, we just had a very an hour and a half discussion. Uh, you know, post-Fed, you know, what are we going to do? Like, is this the time and all that stuff? And I'm not going to necessarily get into that too because we haven't we haven't had the decision. But uh, you know, it's very very as it should be for any fixed income point you know, team. But it's very very active active discussion. But anyway, my my I guess my my answer to at least the first answer to your question is sometimes the trade you you don't do right is just as important or more important and the reasons why you didn't do it as opposed to the the PNL you actually. In this case, the profit, but like the PNL you actually book uh, in in the in the portfolio. So I think that's been that non-trade so far. I think has been really really good and important for our investors and and obviously the team and the firm. I think other things that we do have on you know in, in the book uh, that are, that are interesting. Again, the EM trade, which we touched on a bit, we we still right. like it. We've shaved a little bit of risk off. That's that's not necessarily a change in view, but the markets come our way. We're managing risk. We don't want to necessarily hold as much risk. Uh, so we're kind of uh, right-sizing the trades across the portfolios, whether it's uh, in some of our more uh, core plus neighbor uh, portfolios or whether it's uh, unconstrained or global. But we still like receiving or buying or holding, being long, so to speak, um, the Brazil real debt. Uh, Mexico, and we still have some South Africa as well. Those are kind of our big three um, EM plays. The Japan trade, and we'll see a little bit more tonight, so I won't spend a huge amount of time on it. But we're still in, you know, the Japan trade. Uh, we had a, we had a good a good run since the uh, since the July uh, Bank of Japan meeting, and we'll see what we get here in the next in the next little bit. But you know, as as uh, as Constantine would say, and I, I would say it as well. You know where are the next where are you confident in the next 50 basis points of 10-year yields rising from here and Japan would be at or at, at the top or very close to the top of the list and I think a lot of people on the team if not almost everybody on the team is very comfortable holding holding that risk so from a macro perspective that's the case um, on the Canada side you know it's interesting there's been a very big gap between long-end U.S., 30-year U.S., and 30-year Canada. And I think 
part of that, maybe not all of it, but part of it can be explained more by flows than fundamentals. And what I mean by okay. that is I think the I think the demand for long 30-year paper in Canada is a little bit different than in the US because the pension funds here want to match their their assets and their liabilities. And because the size of the market, the size of the Canadian market is quite a bit lower than or smaller than it is in the US, sure. that I don't want to say at any price, but basically buying that duration at, at almost any price for the big pension funds and other and others, uh, anyone that's got a pension plan, especially a defined benefit plan, um, that that synthetic demand, maybe even not even synthetic demand, but that that demand for paper keeps you know prices higher, yields lower in the long end of Canada more than in the U.S. And I mm-hmm. think that I mean clearly there's pension demand for U.S. paper. I'm not saying there isn't, but I'm saying that the demand as a as a percentage of the size of the market in Canada versus the U.S. is having a, 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 an outsized impact on Canadian yields versus the U.S. And that's why this gap has opened up uh, between you know, Canadian 30-year yields are quite a bit lower than than U.S. yields. And again, that's, I think, a function of just flows and demand. And so, anyway, back to the question, you know, is it time to maybe fade that gap? And we're having a lot of discussions around that. We've been long uh, some Canada duration, long in duration for a bit, and we've shaved a little bit of that. Um, but I think, you know, I think that's an interesting discussion point here as we kind of move into the next into the next phase of the cycle. Can that gap um, keep going? So, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of other things to talk about. You know, we continue to be relatively overweight tips, in particular, uh, the you know link, linkers as a as a broad global asset class, but tips. The U.S. you know U.S. Treasury inflation uh, protected securities because we right. you know, think inflation sticky higher for longer that sort of thing and that's been a you know that yield that yield is obviously a big capture but those are some of the things I think we've been um, you know focused on more from a more from a macro more from a macro perspective. Dustin, I want to thank you for running through all of this. It's been a, a really fascinating conversation. Lots going on. Thanks for all the good work you and the team are doing, and uh, I can't wait to have you back on for the next one. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it. Look forward to the next one. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 